Before we begin, a word about our sponsors. This episode of Stroke of Genius is sponsored by Schwegman, Lumberg, and Wissner, with offices in Minneapolis, Silicon Valley, Austin, and the UK. Whether we know it or not, we interact with plants pretty much every day. Of course, there are the desk succulents or the green lawn out front or the Christmas tree, but I'm talking about something even more mundane. I'm talking about the grocery store. Getting a package of blueberries from a field to a store shelf is nothing short of a modern, modern miracle. My name is Jeff Wells, and I am senior editor at Grocery Dive. Grocery Dive is an online publication that covers the food retail industry. They report on all the ins and outs, the behind the scenes, to get those blueberries or carrots or rice or black beans from farm to shopping cart. Picking your own produce, you know, seeing the food prepared, those kinds of things, that's unique to grocery. Whether it's a mom and pop shop or a massive supermarket, this is where we grab the daily essentials. Apples for kids' lunches, veggies for a salad, watermelon in the summertime. Going to the grocery store is a pretty normal experience in our modern world, one that we don't often think twice about. But a lot of people in the United States don't have easy access to a grocery store. Communities across the country are deadlocked within food deserts. Now we're calling it what it is, is um, food apartheid. More than 23 and a half million Americans who live in a neighborhood which the USDA calls a food desert. The USDA defines a food desert as an area where at least a third of the population lives greater than one mile away from a supermarket for urban areas or greater than 10 miles for rural areas. It is um, individuals making below average income, more uh, minorities, uh, persons of color that, that tend to live in, uh, in food deserts. Healthy food is a racial and health equity issue. It has health impacts uh, if you don't have convenient access to healthier, fresh food. Numerous uh, studies have shown that can have a detrimental uh, impact to health. Uh, it means that if, uh, if you are traveling to those grocery stores, it takes up more uh, of your time to do so. That can be hard for, for people who may work long hours or work multiple jobs. And now, after the COVID-19 outbreak, almost a quarter of all American households don't have access to fresh food. I think the pandemic has compounded the challenges that people living in food deserts face. Recent numbers show an additional 17.1 million people here in the U.S. could experience food insecurity because of coronavirus. So how can intellectual property help combat this issue? Are there any innovations that are tackling food insecurity during a time when people are struggling the most? The answer, thankfully, is yes. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius, season four. I think of it as driverless delivery or robo, uh, robo delivery. 
It's like a cute robot came down the street and delivered our groceries for us. It's an actual car. And it has lights? Yep. This is a promotional video from the company Neuro. I have never seen a self-driving car before. This is a first experience for me. I yeah, Neuro is robotic delivery company. They have a delivery robot that kind of looks like a giant toaster, but it's smaller than your average car. I think right now it maxes out at around 25 miles an hour. I put my pen in and the doors opened. It was so simple. I thought it was exciting. My dog... Neuro owns over 20 patents on their driverless vehicle technology, including technology that focuses on mobile telecommunication, loading and unloading the vehicles, and pedestrian safety. You know, last summer when I spoke with um, an executive at Neuro, and it seemed like there was a pivot there to talking about reaching food deserts as a real opportunity. And Neuro isn't the only company interested in getting food to people who need it most, especially during the pandemic. In February of 2020, a robotic delivery company called Udelve released a tweet offering up its delivery vehicles for those in quarantine. There have been many roadblocks for these companies. Most of their vehicles still require a safety driver. But during the pandemic, these companies have been getting more attention and support. So you're seeing these companies getting more funding dollars. Uh, Neuro was uh, a year, about a year ago, they got approval by the, uh, the transportation department uh, to run their fully autonomous um, delivery vehicle on roads. So more funding, more legislative approvals. These companies have definitely gotten a boost during the pandemic, so I wonder if that you know speeds up the timetable. This is all really encouraging. These companies and their patented technology are getting closer to making food more accessible to those in food deserts. Fresh food that can seriously make a difference in someone's life. What's complicated here, though, is the source of the issue. It's not that there isn't enough fresh produce in the United States. We have the resources. Rather, it's an inefficiency in distributing them. How can we live in a world where there is really high rates of obesity, but also malnutrition and starvation? How can we live in one of the richest economies in the world where people are unable to go to a grocery store as the population continues to grow and grow and grow, we're expected to hit 9 billion people on the planet by 2050, 11 billion by the end of the century. By then, at the rate we're farming, we won't have enough resources. Hopefully, by 2050, everyone will have the ability to go to a grocery store. But will there be food there waiting for them? You know, from 1960 to about 1980, crop production doubled. It's been done. You know, we've, we've doubled it before. We need to double it again. And really, the only way that can be done is to make farming more efficient, or rather, to make growing more efficient. The question is, can we invent a faster crop? You lay awake at night sometimes wondering how we're going to do this. One of the driving forces for me is that I really don't want us to be in a situation where we're answering to the next generation. If you knew this was happening, why didn't you do anything? I'm Amanda Kavanaugh. All right, so my name is Paul South. My name's Don Ort. Don's a professor of plant biology at the University of Illinois. He's also the deputy director of a very specific program there that focuses 
on photosynthesis. Prior to when photosynthesis evolved about three and a half billion years ago, we had no oxygen in the atmosphere. And without those, we wouldn't exist here. All photosynthetic organisms could do this work and make life on Earth possible. Photosynthesis. You might call it the first invention on Earth. And it's the reason we're all breathing today. Without plants, there'd be no oxygen. In the field of photosynthesis, Don is a legend. And maybe that's because he's always known he was interested in plants. I wondered how they did it. I wondered how they stood in one place and were able to deal with all those situations they had to deal with. Don had really established himself at the University of Illinois when in 2011, he got a phone call from someone on behalf of the Gates Foundation. That they would like to have an application for uh, a grant in photosynthesis research. And that's when RIPE started. That's R-I-P-E, RIPE. A bit of a plant science pun, but realizing increased photosynthetic efficiency. I think the closest we get to punning on it, we'll say, oh, it's getting pretty ripe. Ha ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> Don, Paul, and Amanda are all members of this RIPE team. And so I think our goals setting out were, can we use these modern technologies to re-engineer plant metabolism? Paul, another member of the RIPE team, says the ultimate goal for RIPE is getting more food into farmers' fields. Paul is first and foremost a, a molecular biologist, and so he didn't know a whole lot about plants, although he learned very quickly. Amanda was the last member to join the team. Compared to Dawn, she had grown up with little love for plants. I grew up in a really rural part of Canada, uh, surrounded by trees, and I think I just took the greenery around me for granted. I was specifically not interested in plants. Uh, and then I went to university, and I remember being really fascinated by the fact that this was just chemistry come to life. Amanda realized that there's a complex universe within one little plant, and that changed her whole perspective. And from there, I got really interested in photosynthesis. Specifically, Amanda fell in love with one very important enzyme in the photosynthesis process, called Rubisco. Little did Amanda know that Rubisco would end up being a huge component of RIPE's mission. So Rubisco is the enzyme that grabs carbon dioxide and converts it into sugars. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't consider is that every cell in our body has carbon that came to us via Rubisco at some point. Today, Rubisco faces a problem. Because it evolved during a time when there was not a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. Rubisco realized it had a problem. And its problem was that it really wasn't perfect at distinguishing between oxygen and CO2. About one in every five reactions for Rubisco is grabbing an oxygen instead of a carbon dioxide. When it fixes that oxygen, it forms a compound that a plant chloroplast can't deal with. So Rubisco grabs an oxygen instead of a carbon by accident. And it creates this compound that the plant can't break down. The plant cell ships that compound out to break it down and turn it into something that the plant can ultimately use. Think of it as recycling. And this whole long recycling process is called photorespiration. 
And photorespiration is a huge time and energy suck for plants. Plants that could be using that energy to grow bigger faster or produce more crops. In other words, this is an inefficient distribution of resources. Originally, it was thought that scientists might be able to remove the photorespiration process, but that actually makes it worse for plant growth. More recently, scientists thought that maybe we could re-engineer the process to be more efficient. Re-engineer the process. In short, the RIPE team was determined to hack Rubisco to build a faster recycling route. The team began to venture into new science, experiments and processes that had never been performed before. One of the things that we're looking at is, you know, what did we do that was really novel? Where did we add value and what can be protected within that? We thought that there were things that were uh, novel and protectable that we did. Um, and so, you know, that's what we filed a patent on. The patent was filed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's titled Plants with Increased Photorespiration Efficiency. The Gates Foundation is very interested in protecting the intellectual property, and the reason that they are is they want to ensure that it is available uh, free of charge for people in their target areas and, and subsistence farmers. All of the intellectual property belongs to the institution where it was invented. We provided the, the scientific data and the scientific evidence, as well as um, specifically the uh, cloning procedures and the DNA that we were using to modify the plants. Uh, a proud moment to see my name on, you know, say Google patent search or something along those lines to show that it's like, oh, I'm actually doing something that might be useful to not only myself, but others as well. After they patented their work, the RIPE team was eager to bring the Rubisco hack into the field. Because the goal wasn't to keep these plants in the lab, it was to see if shortcutting Rubisco's recycling process could lead to a higher crop production. More corn, potatoes, beans. But all of those plants are endlessly complicated with their own intricate methods for dealing with Rubisco recycling. The team had to decide what crop plant to test on first. We started moving into tobacco plants. There's certainly no part of us that thinks we're going to feed the world by supercharging growth of tobacco. But often in science, you really need a model plant to get things going, particularly one that will grow really fast. The reason to do it is that it's, uh, it's very easy to get the genetic material in there. Right. So this process, the one they patented, isn't exactly a simple one. But bear with me. So we were putting genes that are not normally found in a plant in a plant. The scientists had to get new DNA inside the tobacco plant. And they had two options. The first is to use something literally called the gene gun. You put these, this DNA onto tiny gold particles and you blast it into a leaf. This is the oldest method. Just physically shoot new DNA into a leaf. And if that sounds far-fetched, the other method, the more common method, might sound outright ludicrous. And so there's a, a natural bacterium out there that will insert DNA into plants. The scientists enlisted the help of a bacteria to do the insertion for them. And it's called... Uh, Agrobacterium tumefaciens. 
what we've uh, been able to do is, is modify uh, DNA sequences so that we can insert whatever piece of DNA we're interested in. And so using this bacterium as a helper, it then inserts the DNA for us. Picture a plant cell like a walled-off kingdom. Don, Paul, and Amanda are trying to get inside the walls in order to hack Rubisco. But the guards won't let just anybody through. So the scientists have two options. The first is to storm by fire, to shoot their way in with this gene gun. The second is to recruit a legion of smugglers, the bacteria, who will steal over the walls in the middle of the night and bring the edited DNA directly into the plant cell. Uh, So it's a little bit more complex than that. But for those of us who aren't plant biologists, that's about as far as we can go. Once these tobacco plants have new DNA, they begin to grow. First in little petri dishes, then greenhouses. Then, finally, outside. And then a select few lines from those were chosen for field experiments. And so we did uh, experimental tobacco in the middle of a soybean field. The team also planted a group of tobacco plants whose rubisco hadn't been hacked. Their plant cell kingdoms had remained undisturbed. This was the control group. The scientists would compare the two groups in order to see if the hacked group would grow faster than the control group. So Don, Paul, and Amanda settled in to watch and wait for the plants to grow. They tested and waited and tested and waited some more for about two years. And then? You know, then I really began to believe it. Visually, you could see that the plants were bigger. It seems like the stems got significantly larger. They definitely started growing a little bit faster. The hacked tobacco plants were bigger than their control counterparts. Because they're scientists, Visuals alone were not enough for the RIPE team. But after looking at extensive data, they could confidently say that the hacked group was growing faster. Now, did Don, Paul, and Amanda rejoice with these findings? Were they elated, crying and hugging each other? No, of course not. We are scientists. Very measured responses all the way through. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what else would you expect? But this team had built something new, something that worked. Of course, the next step was trying this out on a crop plant that we actually eat. So now moving into soybean um, and into potato, which has been quite exciting. Those crops are in the process of being field trialed now. I think is, is we'll see some success in maybe all of them, but the degree of success will be a bit different. So each individual crop or species of plant is going to be, have its own personal challenges. And so it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all for all of these plants. The RIPE team has shown that re-engineering the natural world will have huge implications for farmers everywhere. One of the things I've gained a real appreciation for is the value of IP and the importance of IP. And while you're doing these experiments, that one day this might be growing 
and might be seed that's available to the people in the world who most need a yield jump. For me, that's very motivating and very exciting dream to hang on to. Yeah, I guess that's been sort of my entryway into the, the world of IP and understanding the importance of a patent. By protecting their intellectual property, the ripe scientists have ensured that one day, anyone who wants to hack Rubisco and their crops might be able to. Of course, that's still a ways away. Whether it's farmers buying hacked seeds to grow in their own plots or buying a gene gun to employ the hack themselves, both of these possibilities are still a ways away. There are still lots of hoops to jump through. But moving towards progress and offering exciting new solutions to bring more food to people and maybe even help end food deserts is exactly what these scientists had hoped for. And I think we're actually at the beginning of another green revolution. So it's adding another tool to our toolkit um, to make sure that we'll be able to produce enough food to feed the population. Solving huge issues like food insecurity doesn't work with only one perspective. We can't just depend on the plant biologists or the driverless car builders. Instead, we need every kind of perspective we can get. Innovation thrives when there are different people from different walks of life, all moving towards the same goal. And the IP behind a Rubisco hack or a robo-toaster delivering groceries only bolsters that. This work is a testament to the spirit of collaboration in science. I really think that that's powerful and I think it's, I think it's uplifting. I mean, you know, seeing the system and seeing people like Paul and Amanda come out of it uh, is, is, is inspirational to me. This episode is sponsored by Schwegman, Lumberg, and Wessner, with offices in Minneapolis, Silicon Valley, Austin, and the UK. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or a review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.